You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, recording from Washington, D.C., Ankit Panda. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, recording from Maryland. Hey, Katie, it's hard to believe we're already at the end of 2022. The year has flown by, but uh, I hope it's been a good one for you. Well, it's it's been a weird one. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's, it's good to have one last opportunity to uh, come together on this podcast to reflect on... Some of the bigger themes that I think defined uh, the the year gone by, uh, and I know our listeners will get a preview of the upcoming issue of The Diplomats magazine, which tells them what to expect in the year coming ahead. So we won't talk too much about that because I tend to avoid predicting the future because you tend to get things wrong. But um, mm-hmm. looking back on the on the year, I mean, I think I think, you know, we so the way Katie and I sort of came to this is we we each sort of came up with a list of things that we thought really jumped out themes events uh, broad trend lines that defined the year um and I think Katie it's going to be probably unsurprising to most of our listeners that both of us basically ended up with the consequences of the Ukraine conflict and its fallout in Asia at the top of our list I think it's really uh, unsurprising it's it's a major war in Europe um, implicating Russia which continues to be a relevant actor in Asia with a variety of um, different diplomatic relationships across the region um, Ukraine's um, Im- impact on global supply chains for food and so on and so forth have had have had rippling effects the energy consequences I think really when we look back at the year um, there's no getting away from the fact that this war has had uh, tremendous consequences for Asia uh, and of course the whole world but um, you know beginning with that um, I think what's interesting is of course you know last year I think when we did a similar episode we you know everybody kind of expected things to there was a lot of uncertainty about what exactly was going to happen the russian military buildup was known and now we're more more than 300 days into this conflict you know when you look at what we've kind of seen uh in ukraine uh and you know we've we've had this discussion several times on this podcast throughout the year about how various asian states have responded what really stands out to you in terms of the most consequential consequences of uh of this conflict on on asia well yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, just how consequential it was for Asia. And and that can be seen in a myriad number of ways from sort of India's conundrum being, you know, a partner of the United States in the quad, uh, but also, uh, you know, getting a, a, the bulk of its military equipment from, from Russia and being put in a weird diplomatic in-between space. Um, certainly, Nowhere has the war in Ukraine been more sort of close to home and consequential than for Central Asia. And I've talked about that a lot on this podcast. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think the economic repercussions, uh, there was a lot of talk about food security this year, particularly uh, because Ukraine provides a lot of grain exports to Asia, um, to the energy angle. You know, again, India imports uh, uh, energy from Russia, uh, so does China. Uh, but you know, there's sort of um, this pressure in Europe to to try to uh, use energy as, as leverage against Russia, um, but it kind of puts everybody in a difficult position. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing I did want to highlight was um, with regard to Central Asia is that at the beginning of the war, we all sort of expected there to be negative repercussions for Central Asian migrant workers in Russia uh, and, and the remittances that come back to the region. Uh, the World Bank war- warned about uh, a decrease in remittances. Uh, the analyses that came out at the end of the year, however, sort of said the opposite. You know, Central Asian remittances from Russia um, were at all-time highs this year. Uh, and that was in part a recovery from the pandemic slump, uh, but also was reflective of demand in the Russian labor market. You know, if you can think about um, individuals having to go fight in Ukraine, 
that leaves space in the market for for workers. And honestly, the limitation of Ukrainian migrant workers used to be a, a large number of Ukrainian migrant workers in Russia. Uh, those jobs could be taken by Central Asians uh, as the war started. Um, of course, this is a, a upside that may not last and probably will not last for a number of reasons. But I thought it was kind of an interesting repercussion that that I was not expecting and sort of the year proved me wrong. Um, mm-hmm. We we do our best. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think you know I, I certainly think we'll be back to talk about how the Central Asian states are broadly thinking about their long term geopolitical relationship with Moscow after after this conflict. Uh, I, I think that's going to be one of the bigger picture issues over the next year or two. Honestly, I mean, nobody knows when this war will end exactly, of course, but post war Russia, what will that look like? What will the implications be for for Asia and and the European security architecture? And I think Central Asian states being right there on the doorstep will have a lot to say about that. Yeah. And then there's just what one other thing on in that vein, you know, a lot of countries in Asia have sort of tried to walk a, a balanced position, none more so than Central Asia. Um, but I think the 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 ledge that they're walking on is getting increasingly narrow. It's getting increasingly hard to um, sort of both sides this this conflict uh, and and I think uh, as you as you know I think as as we go into the next year um, we're going to see um, where where that where the real uh, sort of triggers are for for falling um, one side of the balance or the other um, but it, it's definitely a dicey situation. Mm-hmm. The other thing you know just the last thing to say on 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 Ukraine and the implications for Asia uh, is I think I mean this war has shown. I think many Asian states, particularly some of the more prosperous democracies in this region and, and their publics, that war is something that can happen to contemporary developed countries. I mean, you know, the fact that the largest country in Europe is, is finding itself at, uh, being invaded by its by its territorial neighbor. I think that has reverberated in Asia where you've seen sort of public opinion shifts in places like Japan, South Korea. Uh, and and even elsewhere in the region about uh, just, you know, attitudes towards defense budgets. Uh, we'll talk about this in a second, but of mm-hmm. course, Japan's new national security strategy. You know, many of the forces leading up to that national security strategy have been in motion before the war started, of course. But, um, you know, I think uh, earlier this year, Prime Minister Kishida, when he delivered the uh, keynote at the Shangri-La Dialogue, you know, he, he was very explicit. Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. So just this idea that, mm-hmm. you know, modern interstate conflict uh conflicts over territory uh are are not a relic of the 20th century they are something that can very much still happen in our world today uh, and i think for a lot of asian states that's been uh, an, an important takeaway uh, from the ukraine conflict yeah i, I mean I, I don't think before so i was i was in taiwan for a week in november I, I don't think absent the the war in ukraine um there would have been so much discussion in taiwan about europe but there absolutely was and i think that's reflective of of that particular um possible conflict but also just the impact more generally uh, of the war in ukraine on on asia and, and ge- asian geopolitics really sort of thinking through the fact that as you noted this kind of conflict can happen there's there's no reason it can't happen um it just hopefully doesn't right um so the next one we had both on our list again katie uh is china's move away from zero COVID uh, and sort of the reactions to the domestic unrest that we covered just a couple episodes ago on this very podcast so given that we've talked about the protest part pretty recently uh, i think it 
just you know is is worth focusing on the the incredibly consequential shift in in Chinese public health policy that will have global consequences again. I mean, just in terms of the the availability of PPE and sort of materials to protect patients from COVID, that's going to be highly sensitive to China now seeing the surge that it is with with estimates suggesting that more than 200 million people have contracted COVID since uh, China moved on its internal policies. It looks like in the new year, China will also open itself finally to um, something like more normal travel flows from outside. Um, but but this one, I think, is, is really a, a a major development this year, perhaps not a, not a surprising one, given how, um, as we discussed on the recent podcast, how difficult it was becoming for Beijing to sustain uh, the types of lockdowns that it had been implementing uh, in the lead up, especially to the twentieth Party Congress. So, um, where do you uh, where do you stand now on on sort of um, you know the broader significance of of zero COVID? What else uh, What else should we be thinking about when we look back on on the turn that China has made this year? Well, I think it's, um, we ran an article recently that pointed this out. Some of the rolling back of the COVID zero restrictions began in early November, but it was very slight. And then it really accelerated after the protests. And now it's as if zero COVID had never existed. It's not mentioned uh, by Chinese authorities anymore. And they've gone the the absolute opposite way and sort of in January plan to essentially throw open the doors and welcome welcome foreign travelers to um, come to China and will, without having to do sort of an extended hotel quarantine. Um, I, I don't know how many tourists will want to travel to China, but we're going to see a lot of uh, Chinese travel, I think, outside of China. And that has repercussions um, because, you know, as as our listeners will know, most countries in, in Asia and certainly in Europe and in the United States have really pulled back on a lot of the COVID restrictions. You know, when you're when you're traveling Asia, people will still wear masks in public transportation and in, in public in some countries. Um, but further than that, in Europe, for example, I rarely saw anybody wearing a mask in public. Um, so I'm thinking about Chinese tourists coming to Europe or really uh, the rest of Asia um, and the the possible repercussions in terms of transmission of that, you know, if you don't have these restrictions in place in the countries people are traveling to, um, but we're going to get sort of a new circulation of, of COVID um, coming out of China. Now, I think obviously the Chinese people are the ones who are going to suffer the most from this, this sort of dramatic pullback of COVID zero in China. It certainly seems that there was not a well orchestrated plan to get out of this, um, and they just ripped the bandaid off. Um, and, and I think as with many things, it's difficult to judge the exact scale. Um, you know, we've seen reports that China's official numbers are not counting COVID deaths if they're if somebody had a, a pre-existing condition, um, which really sort of muddies the water in terms of the numbers. But you know, things like lines at hospitals, uh, not having enough ambulances, um, funeral uh, industries sort of churning up uh, at at a clip. These are sort of the the things that we can observe from afar mm -hmm. um, that that are going to tell us about the scale but I, I think it it bodes sort of poorly especially coming uh, in the winter in the northern hemisphere and then as we lead up into sort of Chinese New Year end of January and into February that's when you would traditionally see a lot of travel within China and within sort of East Asia um, I certainly would have concerns about new circulation um, in, in that time period just because there's just this pent-up demand for travel yeah, and I mean, in general, when you have the virus, you know, circulating in a a large undervaccinated population, you also do get the possibility for for new variants uh, emerging, which I think is something that um, local disease surveillance centers uh, in places like Taiwan, uh, Japan, Korea are keeping an uh, keeping an eye out for right now. Uh, Japan, I think, has started restricting 
yes. certain certain forms of travel from China, uh, and I suspect that'll be um, a, a trend that we'll see uh, in the region as China sort of catches up to the rest of the world in terms of um, where where things are uh, with the pandemic more generally. Mm -hmm. So I think this is going to be, I think, one of the big takeaways from this year, uh, and I think it will have significant effects going into uh, the new year as well. Um, so the next one, I guess, uh, Katie, is the inter-Korean dynamics that have, uh, again, you know, always, always uh, no shortage of news from the Korean peninsula. We just had uh, news of a really remarkable uh, sort of drone incursion by North Korea into South Korean airspace. But more broadly, I think, you know, this one really uh, jumped out to me uh, overall uh, from, from, you know, what we were sort of um, observing this year. We came back to talk about this on the podcast several times, but, but yeah, that one was definitely on my list. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly just if you look at the, the numbers of missile tests in North Korea in this year versus previous years, um, there's clearly something going on. Do you think, I've been meaning to ask you this, do you think that that may be a factor in that was that everybody's been paying attention to Ukraine? So North Korea's like, we got time, we got space, um, we have things to test. Uh, do you think that had any kind of influence or, or is that just sort of cutesy uh, modeling? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, my sense is that, so I guess my, my somewhat hot take is that regardless of the result of the South Korean presidential election and regardless of Russia's war on Ukraine, I think the North Koreans would basically have done what they did this year, uh, which is test a lot of missiles. I think, I think where the difference is at the margin, especially on the domestic political situation changing in South Korea is, is, is the way in mm -hmm. which North Korea has responded, right? The, the UN administration came into office and immediately started talking about, you know, deterrence capabilities and decapitation of Kim Jong-un and preemption. And the North Koreans, of course, responded poorly to that, uh, as we might expect them to. Uh, and then the final four months of the year, we've seen this sort of remarkable spiral between the two Koreas, where, where the North Koreans, uh, you know, in early November, they launched more missiles in a 24-hour period than they previously had in their record most, uh, you know, the record busiest year of missile testing, which was 2019 when they launched 27 missiles. Um, and so that I think is really notable. But the other thing is, uh, you know, is this all leading up to a potential crisis and a clash? I, I was mm -hmm. just in Seoul a couple weeks ago. And, you know, the concern in Seoul is that, you know, maybe all of this, uh, the spiral is leading up to a 2010 style crisis when the North Koreans shelled a South Korean island killing civilians and they uh, mm -hmm. sank a, uh, a, a, um, a South Korean Navy Corvette killing uh, more than 40 sailors. Uh, th right now, it actually seems like both Koreas are really emphasizing proportionality. The North Koreans earlier this summer, Kim Jong-un said that, you know, his mantra for dealing with the U.S. and South Korea was going to be power for power, goodwill for goodwill. So if you do something that we don't like, we're going to respond in a way that you won't like. Uh, and then the response on the South Korean side has also been proportionality. So just to give a couple examples, the North Koreans send drones over the military demarcation line. The South Koreans will send drones back over to do their own reconnaissance. The North Koreans mm. shared a satellite image of Seoul. The South Koreans shared a satellite image of Pyongyang. The North Koreans launch eight, eight missiles. The South Koreans and the U.S. will launch you know, seven missiles and one missile, eight missiles in total. So there's this focus on proportionality that, in my opinion, isn't really doing much to deter the North Koreans because the North Koreans are going to be willing to accept a tremendous amount of risk, uh, which I think is another concern this year, is that they are just becoming much more risk acceptant. Uh, this drone incursion, for instance, I think is a very good example of that. Um, you know, it's actually, uh, it, th this is exactly the kind of thing that could have been perceived by the South Koreans as the beginning of an armed attack, right? You have five mm -hmm. drones coming across the military demarcation line into sensitive airspace near the, you know, near the national capital, near international airports. Um, and the South Koreans followed, you know, standard operating procedures 
But um, that I think you know is is concerning, sort of going into the new year. So yeah, the inter-Korean spiral I think is a big one. There's there's still no signs of de-escalation going into 2023, uh, and in 2023 we're uh, you know looking at the 70th anniversary of the U.S. ROK alliance. The North Koreans have demonstrated a lot of capabilities um, that I think they're going to continue building on. So there's a lot of ways for this crisis to continue. I think uh, festering and spiraling. Always, always cheerful news from the so, Korean Peninsula. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, you know, we'll be we'll be back to talk about this, but but the next one on our uh, on our list is actually one that I'm excited to talk about because we haven't done a podcast on this in a long time, uh, and I think that speaks to this topic broadly, just falling out of first page headlines around the world after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. That is, of course, the status of Afghanistan, the state of the Taliban regime there, uh, and some other developments. But Katie, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of walk us through um, the big developments there this year. Yeah. So, you know, the the reason I wanted to include this uh, on this list is I was, I was looking back through all the things that had happened in 2022, and I had almost forgotten that Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, was killed in a drone strike in Kabul this summer. Um, you know, at the time, it was really big news, um, and it sort of catapulted Afghanistan back into international headlines very briefly. Um, and more bigger picture, it uh, really underscored um, you know, the fact that the the Taliban is neither capable nor interested in in controlling, uh, quote unquote, terrorist groups in Afghanistan um, isn't, you know, Zawahiri was living in Kabul. I'm sure the Taliban knew that he was living in Kabul. The United States found out he was living in Kabul and, and, and sent a drone to take care of him. Um, and so I think that, you know, leads that really exposes what uh, the United States and, and Western powers that had spent, you know, 20 years in Afghanistan um, were concerned about in terms of leaving Afghanistan is that that the country could uh, return to being the kind of place that groups like Al Qaeda can hide out and and muster forces and then plan attacks uh, in in the broader world. Obviously, in Afghanistan right now, the the big group to watch is uh, the Islamic State's offshoot. Um, the Taliban has said that they have have taken care of this group but uh throughout the year there were a number of attacks either attributed or claimed by iskp um islamic state Khorasan province uh that you know are extremely worrying now a number of those attacks uh, targeted uh, shias and um hazaras uh schools uh and sort of honestly institutions and people that the taliban doesn't do a great job of protecting in the first place um but They've also targeted media organizations and government buildings. And so I think within that mix, um, you know, the, the Taliban is de facto in control in Afghanistan, um, but I think it's a tenuous kind of thing. Uh, and, and this might seem somewhat unrelated, but, you know, the, the, the Taliban had promised and pledged that it would allow girls to reenter school in the spring. Uh, that never happened. Uh, and then just uh, in the last couple of weeks, the Taliban has banned girls from university, girls and women from universities and elementary schools and working at NGOs, um, sort of eliminating pretty much every piece of social uh, and public presence for women. Um, in my sort of view of this is I, I think it really shows in conjunction with, um, you know, the Taliban's inability to and or unwillingness to um, 
get a handle on groups like ISKP or uh, Al Qaeda that, you know, there's really an ideological battle at the, the heart of the Taliban. And, you know, it's, it's either um, we stay ideologically pure, um, so we can't sort of fulfill these things the international community wants in terms of women going to school, or we risk losing members to groups that could destroy us. Right. Uh, and so I think, you know, the Taliban has obviously picked group cohesion over international recognition. That's a, a thing that in this year, uh, you know, when I was writing my outlook for 2022, that was the thing that I said to, to watch for was, you know, whether and if the Taliban would be able to get international recognition. I, I think at this point, it's pretty clear that they're not trying to. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it makes it a very concerning year. Uh, but as you said, you know, Afghanistan really fell out of headlines. Uh, obviously, we've continued to pay attention to it uh, here at The Diplomat. But, um, you know, it's just one bad story after another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we have, I guess, fully now entered the era of so-called great power competition, uh, which I guess is a good segue into the last uh, big topic that we have on our list. And this, again, is a sort of a year-ender buzzer beater kind of item uh, that, we, mm -hmm. that we would have normally, I think, dedicated a whole podcast to. But we can briefly talk about it now and probably come back to it uh, in the new year, which is uh, Japan's new national security strategy, uh, which you know, wasn't a surprise. Uh, the, uh, the Kishida cabinet had indicated that they were working to uh, conclude the new national security strategy by the end of the calendar year. Uh, I also think it wasn't entirely surprising what the national security strategy ended up saying, which is that um, Japan perceives a dramatically different um, threat environment in, in Northeast Asia compared to when the last national security strategy was written in 2013. Uh, and as a result, Japan is getting serious about national defense. Uh, and so the I think it's you know no exaggeration to say that this is the most significant post-Second World War rethink of Japan's military capabilities. The big headline item that's received a lot of attention, of course, is Japan's pursuit of so-called counter-strike capabilities, uh, which basically mean missiles that are constitutionally being justified under the idea that Japan would use these missiles once an armed attack has already been initiated, so they're compatible with the self-defense constraints that exist in the Japanese constitution. Uh, and so the, the new national security strategy and national defense strategy emphasize that the government hasn't really changed its position on the constitutionality of these capabilities because there are sort of precedents going back to the 1950s about these kinds of capabilities being permissible for Japan. But um, I think I think it really speaks to, uh, you know, the uh, a, a longstanding interest, particularly within Japan's Liberal Democratic Party, uh, the ruling party right now, in basically normalizing um, Japan's capability to um, act as a normal defensive player on the world stage. I think Ukraine has had an effect on this. North Korea, just the overall decline in the regional threat environment. So this has been a realization of a, a long-running interest within the Liberal Democratic Party to uh, normalize Japan's defense capabilities uh, in this way. So, uh, you know, it, I think broadly you could even compare this a little bit to Germany's, um, you know, Zeitenwende, although I think the Japanese are, are much more likely to follow up on, on the uh, goals of their new national security strategy than Germany might be, perhaps. But uh, it is, I think, a reflection of, of Japan acknowledging uh, a a, uh, a changed world in many ways. And so this, I think, is, mm -hmm. is going to be a major feature of, of the security landscape. I think it's going to affect the U.S.-Japan alliance uh, as the alliance continues to uh, adapt to um, new contingencies and scenarios uh, in, in Northeast Asia and East Asia more generally. So that, I think, is is uh, the last thing we had on our agenda for today, Katie. But before we close out, of course, um, we, you know, it's the end of the month, which means we're going to have a new issue of the magazine out. And why don't you uh, give our listeners a bit of a preview on what to expect? 
Absolutely. So in the upcoming January 2023 issue of The Diplomat magazine, uh, we have our traditional start of the year cover story, which features uh, an all-star cast of Diplomat regulars providing us with some, some real guidance uh, as we start the year. We asked 11 authors to tell us what to expect, what to watch for. Uh, I wrote the Central Asia section and the Afghanistan section. Ankit wrote the U.S. section. Uh, we cover all of the regions and countries uh, that the diplomat pays so much attention to. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it, um, but you've gotten some previews in this this podcast. There's a lot to watch for and honestly a lot to worry about in 2023. So it's, it's the best prep that you can do. Uh, the issue also includes... Uh, three long reads, um, one of which takes us to Kazakhstan, uh, which I did not talk about in this podcast, but uh, this feature in the, the magazine examines the state of the social contract a year after the dramatic and unprecedentedly violent protests in January 2022. Uh, we also have a piece focused on Nepal and its uh, perpetual political instability, uh, just as the country's new government uh, gets its footing. And finally, we take a look at uh, the repercussions of the new U.S. semiconductor export controls for Washington uh, and its allies in Asia. There's a lot more in the issue, and I really urge you to check it out uh, and get get started in 2023, uh, a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that sounds uh, that all sounds like essential reading. Uh, and I haven't read the other uh, the other ten authors' contributions to the what to expect section, so I look forward to uh, going through that soon once once the magazine's published. But with that said, uh, Katie, I think we've um, come to now the end of our last podcast for 2022. So the last thing to do, I think, is to wish all of our listeners, of course, a very happy new year for 2023. Thanks for thanks for sticking with the podcast and listening through this year, especially to those of you who also. Um, you know, reached out with suggestions for topics. We, of course, uh, do take that into consideration. But uh, with that said, um, thanks a lot for listening, as always. And if you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Uh, and if you've been a subscriber, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And we really do appreciate that. So uh, thanks a lot. And uh, thanks a lot to you, Katie, for uh, joining me for another year of great podcasting. Thank you, Ankit. Happy New Year. And I'll see you in 2023.